Okay, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. It is, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made, him, you made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises and again I will put my trust in him. And again he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Evan. Evan went uh, this week to one of the school camps. Tari Christian College had uh, the high school off scattered around the state at various camps, so uh, Evan got an opportunity to, to connect there, and they sent you to the Year 9 camp, didn't they? Yeah, that's right, the great group. They're really, really awesome kids, Year 9. Who remembers being in Year 9? 14, 15. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we've heard great reports. There's been no bad news so far. Is that right, David? Still no, no bad news or good reports? Great. David's at church this morning, so, yep, obviously it all went well. Um, but uh, it was glad that you were, it was a really good thing that you, you were able to be there, Evan, and, um, and more importantly that you came back alive and well, as well with our teachers too, um, who, uh, yeah, are there all week and have been planning it. Well, this is uh, an exciting time, again, coming to Hebrews, um, and uh, I wonder if you're someone who has the Bible app uh, version. Um, there are a couple of really helpful ways to read through 
um, Hebrews um, from different perspectives or different um, nationalities and their theology, which I find really good because we're all, we're all God's people reading from the same page uh, and the same God is in us all. And so, uh, yeah, I just want to encourage you, if you're in, into that Bible app, maybe have a look through, see what uh, reading plan you can engage with. It's a great way to reinforce what it is we're going through and for God to speak to you in that too um, throughout the week. But I wonder, um, as we come to this, have you ever given thought about the future of the human race? Should we be optimistic about it or should we actually be quite pessimistic about the future? And, and I think the answer lies in yes to both in some ways, right? We have good reason to be both optimistic and we also have good reason to be pessimistic. If we were to just think about the 20th century alone, because uh, we're only still new into this century, but if we were to just look back over the 20th century alone, we have witnessed some of the most, or the absolutely most remarkable changes in technology, in the way we live, uh, amazing advances in science and in technology, uh, the likes of which quite literally generations before have never even come close to seeing. Generations before could only dream, uh, imagine and, and perhaps write about. Optimistically, we can look at that and think, wow, look where we stand now. Look at the changes that have come about. And maybe we will finally, if we continue on that trajectory, manage to control our world, to manage it much better, to, to live sustainably in it. And yet with the advances of technology, what else has come along? Well, huge ecological disasters and massive social disasters, right? We've been through in that same century two devastating world wars, genocide on a scale unprecedented in history. It's little wonder that we can be just as pessimistic as we are optimistic about the future given our track record to date. The 20th century also uh, experienced great advances in medicine. Uh, antibiotics were invented. Uh, bypass surgery, and we've even moved on from that now in many cases where what used to be fixed with bypass surgery, which is major surgery, can now be fixed within a, a couple of hours with a, an appropriately placed stent. We've seen improvements to diets. We know now how to eat properly and better. Optimistically, perhaps we will finally one day gain control over our bodies. Glory be the day. <laughs> Researchers are predicting, in fact, that babies born today will probably live to an average of 120 years. I, I think that's optimistic. Uh, however, I think even in, in my generation, we could all agree that um, the age range has sort of pushed out 10 years, hasn't it? You've probably heard me say this several times. You know, our 30-year-olds are now more like our 20-year-olds, our 40-year-olds like our 30-year-olds, and, um, and our 70-year-olds, you think they're only just turning 60. David um, Hayes turned, would you believe, you'd think 60, right, this past week. No, he turned 70. Uh, it happens a lot when I hear people telling me they've turned 80. I nearly fall over and think, good grief, I would have thought you'd just 70. And that's not flattery, that's how it sort of, it is. Would, would you agree? People seem to have, the, the, the age range of generations seems to have improved by about 10 years. Yet when we look at medicine and all these sorts of advances, we find the cure for one incurable disease and all of a sudden another one pops up, a new one the latest of which has practically crippled our globe uh, for the past year. 
Advances in medicine, uh, and this is a quote, advances in medicine enable us to save premature babies who otherwise would have died, while at the same time we can abort babies who otherwise would have lived. We have cultured viruses for use in vaccines, the same ones we can use in biological warfare, said one commentator. So will mankind continue to rule the future? What hope is there for us? Well, the passage from Hebrews this morning raises this very issue. Who is it that will rule the world to come that lies ahead of us? And who is ruling the world even still now? But to recap, as we uh, launch into um, the rest of chapter 2, left over from last week and into the next little bit of chapter 3, you'll notice Hebrews is a little bit like Romans. Uh, Whoever put the chapters in, and that wasn't necessarily inspired, well, it wasn't inspired by God, um, haven't always got it right. So sometimes we just kind of uh, adjust and of course there's different places you can start and stop but that's why it's not lining up for those who love things to line up it's not lining up with the chapters uh, per se but we're kicking off from verse 5 of chapter 2 and uh, don't forget as we recap this is a message that was preached it wasn't a letter that was written necessarily although it was preached it was heard it was written down and distributed to churches but it reads a lot better as we we listen to it I don't know if you enjoyed that experience Uh, last week I think Mel read the scriptures this week Evan you can sit there and almost picture yourself in the first century hearing it as a sermon you almost don't need a message just read through um, Hebrews except for the part that we live 2,000 years later and there's a whole lot of confusing things in there about the Hebrew people but this was uh, preached and written directly to a group of Jewish Christians and and they've been tempted to turn back they've come to Christ they recognize he is their Messiah but the old ways are starting to come back up again and starting to look a lot better They, they want to go back to the Old Testament ways as if Jesus was perhaps a you know passing fad to look back at and now it's time to return to what's really important and what's really significant. And it's a sermon uh, to written specifically them to remind them of how much better Jesus is. He's way better than anything. He's better than anything that's come before. Jesus is better than the angels, chapter 1 told us. Um, we looked at how for Jewish Christians uh, back in the first century, angels were just like top level, top shelf, put them up on a pedestal, amazing warriors, um, beautiful creatures that just did amazing things and people hung out to hear from an angel. Um, And we were reminded that Jesus is better than the angels. They were the ones that worshipped him when he was born. Um, Jesus has a better message, even than the law of God. He fulfills the law of God, uh, which was the message that the angels gave to Moses. And even though angels might look impressive, even though an angel's message would make you sit up and take notice, um, Jesus has something far more helpful. Jesus is better and he comes as the ideal human being who is superior in every way. And that's the thought that continues to develop because these angels had a huge impact upon uh, people in the first century, particularly uh, Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians. And so the writer hasn't finished yet with that theme as it's developed in chapter 2. But you know, like every good sermon, what should be at the heart of every good sermon? Every good sermon should be taken from the scriptures, right? It should be preached from the scriptures from God's word and Hebrews is exactly the same whoever preached this whoever wrote it knew their old testament and right throughout it they use the old testament uh, as to to um, to be at the center of this message so Hebrews is based on the scriptures and the bible passage that this part of Hebrews we've just had read is based to, uh, on psalm 8 a psalm of David 
maybe you noticed it as Evan began to read it uh, and heard it, that it was a familiar psalm to you. Psalm 8 is a very familiar psalm to many of us. And it's a psalm of David that talks about the glory of humanity. It's the psalm where David's sitting there, as a, no doubt reflecting on his time as a shepherd boy out in the middle of a starry sky and just going, wow. No phones, no, nothing to distract him, no one emailing him, texting him. Just going, wow, who am I in light of this majestic universe and yet declaring that God has put us at the centre, the pinnacle. And that's what Psalm 8 does. Psalm 8 reflects upon the creation story in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, an account which sets the first man and first woman created in God's image as the pinnacle, as the high point, the focal point. Even the fact that there's two accounts of God's creation uh, backs up again in chapter 2 is designed that way to show, yeah, you've heard the creation story, but let's zoom in on what's really important. It was the day that God created man and woman. We're the piece de resistance of God's creation. The idea that we were designed for glory is a glory that makes the angels pale into complete insignificance. And here in Hebrews chapter 2, particularly verses 6 to 8, the preacher quotes directly from Psalm 8, and he does this to say that the glory and honour that God intended for all of humanity is an absolutely mind-boggling truth. It's a mind-boggling thought and one almost too much for us to grasp. Pick it up from verse 5 in Hebrews chapter 2 where it says, It is not to angels that, that God has subjected the world to come about which we're speaking. What's he saying here? It's not to angels. Who is it? It's to us. It's to humanity. And yet how often when we look at our lives, when we look at the lives of others, it doesn't always feel like that, does not We don't certainly feel like we're the pinnacle of creation around us. It doesn't feel like we deserve such a glorious position in God's good creation, if we're honest. I know there's some people that think and know and are very convinced that they should be at the centre of God's creation, but those small number of people aside, um, when we see both the good and we see the evil or the bad that we've done in our world as human beings, our minds fill up pretty quickly, don't they, with the doubts about our place in God's creation. Listen to how both Hebrews chapter 2 and Psalm 8 raises the same objection. Verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 2, which quotes Psalm 8. But there's a place where someone has testified, Psalm 8, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? The son of man that you care for him? You made them for a little while lower than the angels. That's a, a difficult phrase. It can mean a better than, uh, as well as a little while in terms of time. Um, anyway, we've gone, English has gone with that. You made them for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour, and you put everything under their feet, under humanity's feet. And, and while that quoted psalm is obviously talking about us as human beings, uh, here in Hebrews, the quote kind of takes a new turn with that phrase, son of man. You see, that phrase refers to Jesus. And so it reads more like, you, God, have made Jesus a little lower than the angels for a little while. You crowned him with glory and honour, and you've put everything under his feet. So who's the preacher of Hebrews now applying Psalm 8 to? Well, he's applying Psalm 8, not to us, but to Jesus, the complete and perfect human being, the Son of Man. 
the person of Christ. I mean, the psalm gets it right too, doesn't it, as it reflects on Genesis 1 and 2. It most certainly uh, does reaffirm that God's plan and design for his created human beings was for us to uh, be at the centre, it was for us, uh, not the centre, but to be the pinnacle of his creation, to be glorified in the creation, to be the ones that rule over and in and above creation, to have dominion over his good creation, but to do so under his authority. And yet the writer to the Hebrews knows, just as we do, that that's not how things are. That that's not how it is right now. It's not our experience of life that we as people have such a prominent place in the world. We catch glimpses of it, no doubt. We see glimpses of our potential. Uh, there are many things to celebrate about human achievement, but ask someone who's been doing it tough, ask anyone uh, who's experienced the ugly side of human beings, either as a recipient or as a perpetrator, and they'll remind us of the terrible truth about who we are and what we devastatingly can be. Of course, we know the reason for this, don't we? It's not the way things are because the Bible also tells us another story, not only of our prominent place in God's creation, but of sin and of death, which ultimately brings the glory and prominent place of authority that God created us to have to pretty well nothing. We lost it. So on the one hand, we see that God crowned us with glory and honour. He's put everything under our feet. But on the other hand, at present, we don't see everything subject to humankind whatsoever. What do we see instead? We see at present cancer. What else do we see at present? We see threats of terrorism. We hear rumours of war and we see actual wars. We see loved ones ageing and deteriorating from a fraction of the, the, their former selves that we knew. We, we see marriages failing and, and, and are difficult to continue in. We see all these horrible reality TV shows with all their glitz and glamour uh, only proving to us that we can't even control our kids or our families, our spouses, our relationships, our friendships, let alone the whole of creation. We can't even get day-to-day -day living right. At present, we do not see everything subject to humanity. But what do we see? Verse 9... But we do see Jesus who, made, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, ultimately that's our real problem, isn't it? Death. It's our greatest problem. No matter what we think we might have achieved in our greatest century to date, death is still 100% inevitable and it's 100% actual. Death remains our greatest problem. And we might be able to push out things by 10 years here and there, but there's only one solution to death, to date, and forever in faith, and that is Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. And so we have a shared humanity with Jesus, which is important. Look down a few verses further in verse 14 of chapter 2. Our problem is, you see, that we're flesh and blood. And so being flesh and blood, we die and because of that, we live with this almost constant looming fear of death. Some of you have, uh, have don't think of that at all. You're at the, 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 the peak of your lives and you've got so much to live for, and that's wonderful and great. But at some point, you will come face to face with the reality of death, either in a loved one or, or something that takes you by surprise uh, or uh, your, own, your own mortality. Many of us, we know what that's like to, to live with this constant looming fear of death and, and perhaps even more so than that what about uh, what lies 
after death? What about the fear of what lies after death, where we'll meet some kind of judgment? I was reminded this morning how, how often in our world we don't hear about that, and even in the church we often don't talk about what lies beyond death for every person. Judgment in the hands of God and an eternal judgment that's past and from which there is no return. The looming fear that after death, as the scriptures say here, we'll find ourselves somehow in the hands of the evil one, the devil. Have a look at verses 14 to 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and that Jesus might free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Here's the point. Jesus has taken our flesh and blood and in so doing, he's shared in our humanity. And this is really important. He's died a human death He's faced death, he's, he's been, he was dead, stone cold dead, and in doing that, he has shown once and for all that death is not necessarily the end of the story. Now, the perfect man dies, the ultimate death, and yet powerfully he overcomes it, uniquely, uh, unlike any other. And so for Jesus, the end of life is not the final word, and all of us as human beings can now know the only way through death and into the same everlasting resurrection life and we, we know that by trusting and by following the perfect man, Jesus, who went through it before us and for us. Well, what does this all mean for each, of, for each of us? It means this. It means that you and I, in the meantime, are made perfect through suffering. You might remember from last week, um, the Jewish Christians, first hearing the message of Hebrews... Uh, they're dissatisfied with Jesus. Um, they're thinking Jesus is nowhere near as impressive as angels. They're thinking somehow angels are superior to Jesus, that angels would be a better sort of saviour. Or, or maybe this, and this is probably more the case, this is, uh, this is a theory more popular uh, for a long time, and that is that maybe Jesus wasn't God in human form at all, but he was just another angelic being, that he only took on the shape of a man, and therefore he was not really human. So that's some of the common thinking at the time. And so it's important to understand that, that this is the whole focus of, of, of Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verses 10 to 18, the next eight verses. Um, the whole point of what God has done in Christ, the whole beauty of it, is that fundamental truth that Jesus is genuinely human, that Jesus became fully human. And, and in so doing, he shared in our humanity. Um, think of it like this. If you've ever been uh, to the doctor and received, or you may have known of someone who has, and they've diagnosed you with something and it kind of concerns you, and, and the treatment sounds like it's going to be unpleasant and probably awful, and the doctor can't quite give you too much reassurance as to how it will all end. And so you sit there, right, when you receive such a diagnosis and you accept that because the doctor's the expert, and yet deep down, it's really just professional information, isn't it? Now think about the doctor, and maybe some of you have experienced this, I don't know, but think about if your doctor turned to you, looked you in the eyes, held your hand, and shared with you that five years ago he or she was diagnosed with the same issue, and they went through the same treatment, and that they know exactly what it is you're about to go through. How do you feel after that sort of conversation when you leave the doctor's surgery? Well, that's just a, a, an illustration of what the next few verses are saying about Jesus. 
He's the one through whom all things were created, and so he's fully God, and yet he's also fully human as he entered our world and he suffered the things that we suffer in every way, yet without one thing, he was without sin, but God and human, doctor and patient, making us perfect through his suffering. He can identify with what it is that we go through, and more importantly, we can identify with him. Verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Well, the passage then continues with three quick quotes from the Old Testament that all reinforce the same point, and that's this, that God's Messiah, God's Saviour that he sent into the world is of the same flesh as God's people. He's a member of the family. Jesus shares in our humanity. Jesus shares in our suffering. He shares in our death. And then by his resurrection, he totally destroys the power of death and, and the hold of death and the fear of death that looms about what's beyond death. And he does that to set us free from slavery to that fear. Now think about the angels. It wasn't them that needed to hear this. The angels don't need that sort of help. It's humanity. It's us, people like you and me. Which is the whole reason uh, verse 17 says that Jesus had to be made like us. Have a look at verse 17. It says that he was made fully human in every way. Why? So he could be the merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. We're going to look at that theme of what a high priest is and does in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, it returns to it again in, uh, in chapter 4, I think, or chapter... Uh, well, you'll know in a couple of weeks' time. Um, we won't go into it this morning other than to say this, that Jesus is the final high priest and what's significant there is that he's this merciful and faithful high priest. He's this merciful high priest and that's really important because he can be merciful precisely because of what we've heard this morning. He has... And he does, and he can, identify with us in our suffering, in our humanity. Um, I don't know if you've ever given much thought. This is to further illustrate high priest. We'll pinch a bit from a few weeks' time. But I don't know if you've ever given much thought about what it's going to be like when you meet God. What it's going to be like when you stand before him. There's a beautiful song I can only imagine. You've probably heard it. You've probably sung it. And it, uh, it's hard to get through without shedding a tear. And ask the same question, what's it going to be like when we come face to face with God? Who are we actually going to meet? What's that moment? How's it going to be? Well, let me suggest this morning that we're actually going to meet God's middleman. Think about the most powerful person that we know in our country. No, not Rupert Murdoch. Um, let's, let's go with Prime Minister Scott Morrison. <clears throat> you see, you and I can't just turn up and have a bold meeting with Scott Morrison. We can't just walk straight into Parliament House to the PM's office and, and just go in and say day and say hi and meet him. Um, possibly if you're an important person, you might get to meet um, his assistant secretary or his assistant to the secretary or one of his aides from his office. But, you know, when it comes to meeting the truly most important person that we know, the creator of the universe, we've got to meet with his high priest. And that's who we will encounter, his high priest, Jesus, the one that happens to also be his one and only son. 
And what's that moment going to be like? Well, the sort of reception we're going to get, we're going to hear this. We're going to hear, I know what it's like. I've been there. And he'll say, good on you for keeping going. Good on you for staying faithful. Good on you because I know it's tough. I know how hard it is. I've experienced the same temptations you've experienced. I've experienced the same heartache and struggles and the same despair God knows that you've experienced. This is really great news, isn't it? This is awesome news. And if you keep in mind that this is first and foremost a message for people who are tempted to turn back from Jesus, to turn away from this high priest, to turn back to the old rituals and religious carry-on that the Old Testament had put forward and developed, uh, back to these Jewish ways... For those who are tempted to turn back to the laws of Moses, it's no wonder that we finish at the start of chapter 3 with another call to once again fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes, fix our thoughts on him. You think about for, for Jews, who's one of their greatest heroes beyond angels, humanly speaking, it would have to be Moses and obviously Abraham, which we'll get to, but Moses was a worthy and faithful servant for sure. And Hebrews says, yeah, sure, that's what Moses was. He served the house of God really well. The Old Testament laws that he gave, they were good laws. They kept pointing to the future. They opened up a way to understand how holy God was uh, and is. But now in Jesus Christ, the future is here. The future has arrived. It's here now in the person of Jesus. And this is our glorious hope. So don't even bother with Moses. You've got Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future, but Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, we the people, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. I wonder as we close this morning, if that describes you, those last couple of verses. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? Are we those who are known for the ones who hold on to our courage? Are we the ones who, in confidence and humility, are able to boast about our glorious hope in Jesus Christ and him alone? Are we able to say that we're not people who, is, who are consumed by the frustrations that come with suffering? We certainly experience them, we lament them, but we're not overrun and consumed by them. But we're, we're the sort of people who look at trouble and we're the sort of people who are able to look at even death and we're able to say, Jesus is my future. Jesus is my saviour. And he's the God-man who can identify with me. He's the God-man who identifies with me in everything that I've experienced, in whatever circumstance I've gone through, what I'm currently going through, and whatever the future may devastatingly bring into our lives. The one that came, the one that came so that we would have that glorious day to look forward to. The one that has reassured us that we will return to and be made right in Christ, to our rightful place in God's presence, in his new creation, uh, as those uh, who are the glorious pinnacle of the world that he makes. And Jesus has shown for us what our glorious hope looks like. I don't know about you, but um, for me personally, I, I confess um, I've really actually given up on worrying about the future. Maybe you go, oh, does that explain why he doesn't seem to be all that frazzled anymore? Um, 
Oh, no, we still paddle, you know, like ducks, aren't we? We paddle underneath the water. But I really have, and it's a process. I haven't just done it like that. Um, The last attempt that I really had a fair crack at trying to figure out the future was trying to navigate our way through 2020 last year. Um, And I really should have known better, as all of us, right? Because no matter what happens uh, in this next century, no matter what happens this next year, no matter what happens this next month, week or day, Jesus is the only one who holds our future. Jesus is the only one who holds our future. And he's the one who's been given the future to rule in. He's been given the future to rule through. And he's been given the future to rule over. And he has saved us in this present time, however long we've got. And he's also saved us to this hopeful future that we look forward to. And he's already ruling over that. And he's already reigning in and through and over that. I don't know, for some of us this might be hard to take in or it's all too familiar to us, but we're not talking about someone who's distant here. We're not talking about some theory, some worldview, some perspective, even some tradition. We're talking about a saviour according to God's word and the witnesses that knew him and understood him that God has revealed to. We're talking about a saviour who knows exactly what it's like to be living in the circumstances that we live in today. And even in our weakness, our frustration, our despair, even in our shaky faith that wavers, even in the failures that we make, we pick ourselves up again because we know we will come through. We will come through because Jesus has gone through and will bring us through. So there's always hope, even in the darkest times and even in the toughest times. The one who became human like us, the one who became human for us. And he's the one that'll say, I know what it's like. So keep at it, church. Don't give up. Don't despair. Lament for sure. Do so as an act of worship to God. There's plenty of examples of of lamenting and sharing our frustrations with God. But you and I, we were made for great things and that day will come. Hold on to your courage. Hold on to your hope. Our Father, we come before you this morning as our Heavenly Father and we acknowledge that it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our saviour, our king, our brother, the one who in his humanness has gone before us through all circumstances and ultimately through the death that awaits us all. Father, we thank you for the reminder, the profound reminder, and while sometimes this can sound confusing or heavy or deep, we thank you that it's not cheap and trite and simple. We thank you, Father, that what you have done something that transcends anything we could possibly hope to do or even imagine to do for ourselves. And so this morning, um, as we're reminded of our place, both as the pinnacle and glory of all creation, as well as uh, being so distant uh, and, and so frail and so uh, failing in that role, we declare again as your people here this morning our faith and our trust in you, the Lord Jesus, the one who's gone before us. We ask that this would propel us and compel us to live out in the years, the weeks, the months, whatever it is that you have for us in this present time, to live out our lives in such a way that it will cause people to to ask questions about the way we live, to ask questions about our motivations for the way we live, to ask questions about the hope and the faith and the trust that we have. Father, we ask for wisdom 
when those opportunities afford us to speak to people. Holy Spirit, go before us and give us the words that we need to, uh, to say and to speak. May we do so with grace, with compassion and with humility, undergirded by a rock-solid confidence. And we pray these things in Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.